Sleep is absolutely fundamental to our health and well-being. When we do not get the right amount of sleep, then uh, everything else becomes more challenging and more difficult. There is no good way to work at night. Fundamentally speaking, we are not evolved to be awake at night. And when we ask people to work at night, we're asking them to work against their body clock, and that has consequences. Hello, and welcome to A Slice in Time with me, Linda, host of Woodlands, What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics crucial to health that are typically not taught, glossed over, or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. As always, stay in touch and keep up to date by following Woodlands on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find comprehensive show notes with references and further reading related to this episode and more content on my website, lindadoes.com forward slash Woodlands 22 for this particular episode. Please also note that this is a podcast for education and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as individual medical advice. This episode covers the link between sleep and physical and mental health without being judgmental or stressing out about the consequences of poor sleep, I promise. My guest is the brilliant Dr. Michael Farquhar, a consultant in sleep medicine working in the Evelina London Children's Hospital with a special interest in improving sleep for health professionals and shift workers and spreading awareness about it. We cover the basics of what sleep is, how much we need and how to improve yours. But I found that most mainstream sleep information resources tend to ignore the demographic of shift workers. So I made sure we also discuss what is known about shift workers effects on health and mitigating risks of poor sleep for those of us who must work against our body clocks. If you aren't already excited to listen, we do also discuss alien abduction, caffeine naps, and a delightful concept called flexible consistency. So let's get straight into it. First of all, thank you very much for coming on the show. And if you could just give a little introduction for people who don't know you. So hi there, my name's Mike Farcher. I'm a consultant in sleep medicine at Evelina at London Children's Hospital. Uh, my main job is looking after uh, sleep difficulties of uh, children and young people and supporting them and their families. Uh, but I also have a, a number of other interests, uh, one of which is uh, talking about the fact that we don't talk about sleep enough in general, uh, and particularly how that impacts uh, people working in the NHS, particularly those who work shift. Uh, and my other area of interest is LGBT plus uh, health for young people in particular, uh, and I've been part of the Rainbow NHS platform. Great. Um, so today we'll talk a bit more about sleep and I'm quite interested in lifestyle medicine. I've covered kind of mostly nutrition and some exercise side of things and that's typically what gets most of the kind of attention in lifestyle medicine and the pillar of sleep medicine isn't really, doesn't get as much attention. Um, why do you think that is and did you yourself learn much about sleep or how did you kind of get into that field? Oh, I agree with you. I think sleep has very much been neglected. Um, if you think about sleep and what it is and how much of it we do, we spend about a third of our lives asleep on average. And you're absolutely right. We should think about uh, sleep as being one of the pillars of good health and well-being um, and getting those basics right for most people. So as you say, people often concentrate on things like uh, nutrition and diet and exercise. But actually, sleep is absolutely fundamental to our health and well-being. Uh, and when we do not get the right amount of sleep, then uh, everything else becomes more challenging and more difficult. Medical schools uh, have a long history of not talking about sleep. You spend a third of your life asleep, but most medical schools we know give, on average, less than an hour of teaching uh, during a five-year undergraduate curriculum. Um, and that means that most people start medicine without really very much knowledge about sleep. That then is countered by the fact that sleep problems are very common. I'm a paediatrician, you know, so I see the tip of the iceberg of young people with sleep problems. Most sleep problems that parents want to talk about are dealt with by health visitors, by GPs, by grannies, um, occasionally by consultant pediatricians. Um, but it's very rare that they come and see a consultant pediatric sleep medicine. And that's equally true in adults. Uh, lots of uh, areas where sleep interact. In terms of my own experience of sleep, so I'm an Edinburgh graduate. Uh, I graduated from Edinburgh uh, in 2000. Uh, and just like every other medical school, particularly at that time, there was very little about sleep in the undergraduate curriculum in Edinburgh. But I did an intercalated uh, degree in psychology uh, during my time in medical school and uh, was very lucky to be taught by um, sadly now deceased Bob Morris, who was professor of parapsychology at Edinburgh. So Edinburgh has this uh, professorial chair of parapsychology uh, mm -hmm. as part of the psychology department that looks at all those things that get labelled as weird and wonderful and, and some people come up with um, supernatural explanations for and what the parapsychology department does is say, well, let's look at the rational explanations for those things. And as part of that, 
uh, there was a lot of teaching and training about sleep because actually when we don't sleep well or weird and wonderful things not happen, then sleep is one of the places that happens. So things like alien abduction stories, aliens came and got me in the night or supernatural ghosts are attacking me in the night. Actually, you can make sense of those if you understand sleep physiology. So the only teaching and training I got about sleep uh, during my time at Edinburgh was from the rather remarkable Bob Morris and the parapsychology department, which I kind of love. That's such an interesting into it. Uh, I love the the kind of the the tangent, but yeah, that's really cool. And so, what is sleep? I think this is, we got like our kind of one hour that I got was kind of what sleep is, kind of in terms of the pathways and the neurology of it yeah. and consciousness. Yeah. So, what is it in easy terms, and why is it important, and how have studies shown that lack of sleep, like how that can affect us? So the, the simplest possible way to think about this is um, your brain and body are a complex piece of biological machinery. And if you think about any complex bit of machinery, so a car, for example, that machinery will need regular repair and regular maintenance to make sure that it's working at its best. You, you need to take it in for its MOT and things every now and then. If you skip on that repair and maintenance, your car will carry on running and will probably be OK for quite a long time. But the, the longer you skip the repair and the maintenance, the more little problems become bigger problems and the more difficult it will be to run your bit of machinery efficiently and cheaply. And that's kind of what sleep does for you every single night of your life. Sleep is that regular chance for your body to do repair and maintenance that keeps every other aspect of your brain and body functioning at its best. And in exactly the same way, if you are a little bit sleep deprived most nights of your life, well, you will carry on functioning, but you will not be functioning at your best. And yes, while we can go into the uh, the neurological pathways and everything that's going on in the brain when we sleep. Um, that more top view way of thinking about sleep, I think, is actually the most useful because people get that straight away. You know, uh, once you start getting into you know the, the in-depth of neurotransmitters and what does this and which pathway does that, people kind of switch off a little bit. But actually, it's really simple to understand that basis. In terms of the studies, there are lots of studies that tells us what happens when people are sleep deprived. Uh, there's lots of personal experience. You will know yourself that you've had a bad mm. night's sleep. You tend to be a bit more rapid the next day. You don't concentrate as well. There are lots of studies that tell us that you don't learn as well. So if you've not had a good night's sleep the night before, you try and learn something new. You don't take that information in as well. If you don't get a good night's sleep after you've learned something new, you don't retain and integrate that knowledge as well. So good sleep for medical students, I think, should be something we're absolutely emphasizing. We kind of create this culture in medical school where burning the candle at both ends is seen as what you have to do when actually for good learning we should be emphasizing the opposite. From a physical health perspective and particularly when we think about uh, those working shifts we know that chronic sleep deprivation begins to significantly increase your risk of lots of physical health problems so cardiovascular disease, uh, some types of cancer, type 2 diabetes, obesity, uh, Alzheimer's disease are all linked to chronic sleep deprivation over a lifetime. As a paediatrician, we know that making sure that we optimise the quality of sleep for young people is one of those ways to give them the best possible start heading into their adult lives. So it makes sense in a public health um, perspective as well. If we optimise sleep, then um, actually it costs NHS less overall, hopefully, is the idea. Mm. And yeah, I, I was going to say that there is this entire culture about bragging about functioning on not much sleep. And I used to say that mm. as well. Like, I'd be like, oh, well, I function best on not very much sleep. And I think that there's kind of not an understanding of the importance of sleep quality and things like that as well. People that say um, I can drink coffee and fall asleep, no problem, and alcohol and things like that. Um, but I feel like we do prioritize or many parents pr prioritize sleep in their children and that's very important but then as you kind of grow up it seems to become forgotten about and you go into the the capitalist machine. <laughs> their, um, the parents try, their children quite often have uh, contrary ideas mm. as to how important they think sleep, they think sleep is uh, but yes the parents will often try and do that. I think again there are lots of different ways of looking at this um, so uh, one of my uh, common tasks is trying to motivate adolescents to do things that they don't want to do um, and trying to find ways to do that is one of the challenges and the joys actually being pediatric but a lot of them respond really well to finding a reason for them to prioritize sleep so for some you know the ones who are more academically minded spending time with them and explaining to them how much sleep is linked to their ability to learn and do well in their higher, whatever higher level um, uh, is really important 
for ones who might be more motivated by sport, then you can find plenty of examples of elite athletes who say, do you know what one of the most important things in my training reg regimen is? It's making sure that my sleep is as good as possible because I know that I function at my best. You mentioned capitalism and the joys of the business world. So again, there has been a prevalent culture of, you know, people have to be seen to be working. Um, you know, if you're not sending emails at midnight, then obviously you're not committed enough to the job kind of thing. Interestingly, even that is beginning to, to be challenged. So um, Ariana Huffington is an American businesswoman who founded the Huffington Post, among other things. And she had a revelation uh, due to uh, some issues with her own health where she realized that she was doing that, burning the candle at both ends, took some time off, came back and said, actually, in my companies, I want our staff to really optimize sleep. I don't want people sending emails you know, at 10 o'clock at night. I want to make sure that we're prioritizing looking after ourselves and uh, looking after our feet. Actually, they tend to find that everything gets a bit better when everybody's sleeping better and looking after themselves. Well, actually, the company functions better and probably becomes more profitable um, when we get these things right. But making those changes is often really difficult because people, as you say, the culture is one where bragging about how little sleep we get is seen as a positive when really it should be the opposite. Mm. Yeah, when I first kind of came across how the importance of sleep and the actual impact it has, saying as I said, I'm interested in lifestyle medicine and I was quite shocked by how neglected that part was. Yeah. And so I kind of committed during lockdown to creating a proper sleep routine and it made such yeah. a difference for like my learning and just, I felt better. Maybe part of it was placebo, but it was just uh, such oh, a difference. Yeah, and I think kind of you hit the nail on the head a little bit is that what makes it difficult for many people is they kind of vaguely know what they need to do, but actually doing it is difficult. Um, and you took the advantage of the fact that the whole world was changed yeah. by lockdown to say, well, actually, right, I'm going to use that and do something to change it. But it's sleep is the kind of thing, it's a bit like, you know, when you're trying to lose weight, this is not, you know, you don't eat healthily for two days and go to the gym once and expect to see a big difference. You have to commit to uh, really thinking about optimising your sleep and thinking about good sleep routines and good sleep habits. And the payoff might be quite a way down the line in terms of before that starts to kick in. And that's that kind of delayed gratification is often uh, one of the more complicated aspects of trying mm. to change anyone about anything. Yeah, and it's interesting because people think that with diet and exercise, you can get a quick fix as well. But I know that there are studies that show that if you're sleep deprived, as you said, athletes don't perform as well. And also your body metabolizes food different. So calories are different if you're sleep deprived or not, and depending on when you eat it. So all that's quite interesting as well in terms of the, the long term gains in your health. It's also something that I think we're going to get a much better understanding of. So we are increasingly understanding the cellular mechanisms of how sleep is regulated. And so every cell in your body has its own uh, body clock circadian system. And that really impacts on things like, as you say, the time of when we eat. So when I think, you know, so thinking about night shift workers, for example, their risks of developing health consequences um, from working against their body clock quite high and and things like you know having a big meal at three o'clock in the morning where your, your body's not really primed to be taking in and digesting that food so as you say um that has consequences so things like glucose tolerance tends to be more impaired when you take in a big load of calories in the middle of the night compared to when you do it in the daytime and that obviously then has consequences in terms of uh, long-term risk of things like type 2 diabetes and obesity so the metabolic implications of irregular sleep and sleep deprivation are, are very definitely something we're getting a much better understanding of. Just because you see a lot of children and adolescents with sleep disorders, I thought it would be interesting to just kind of briefly touch on how our sleep requirements change as we age as well. So there are lots of things that change about sleep over time. So one of the joys of being a pediatrician is that uh, a newborn infant and a 16, 17 year old adolescent are very different uh, in terms of physiology and psychology. Whereas adults have it easy because you know, generally physiology doesn't change that much since you're an adult. So one of the joys of pediatrics is that we have to look at that whole thing. Um, newborns sleep a lot. Doesn't always feel like that to parents, but um, newborns probably sleep for around about two thirds of the day on average. Um, they tend to sleep in puddles, so they sleep for a few hours, then they wake up and feed, they go back to sleep, they wake. So parents' sleep gets very disrupted by that pattern. And what we see happening from the age of about two months onwards, babies begin to be able to respond to the kind of this circadian body clock cues that help them to begin to consolidate sleep into nighttime uh, and then to be more awake in the daytime. 
that by the time most infants get to the age of one, they have consolidated the majority of their sleep into a, a hopefully a relatively long overnight block. They are by that point able to go long enough without feeding to be able to sustain themselves, which isn't true when a newborn. They often still have a degree of daytime sleep that gradually drops off over the preschool years. And by the time kids get to school, then you hope that they have a single consolidated block of overnight sleep and are not sleeping in the daytime. The amount of sleep that we need at any one age is unique to you. Um, so it's a bit like when we think about a biological variable like height, there isn't the right answer to how tall should a five-year-old be. There's a range of normal. And actually the amount of sleep that we need is very similar. And so although at any age we can talk about what the median amount of sleep would be for that person, um, that doesn't actually tell us what their individual sleep requirement is. So adolescents, I do a lot of work with um, adolescents uh, in terms of sleep difficulties, because for lots of reasons, their sleep is often very challenged. The median sleep requirement for an adolescent is probably around about nine, nine and a half hours. Mm -hmm. The range of normal is probably anywhere between about seven and 11 hours. And if you're an adolescent whose biology is wired so that you need to have 11 hours of sleep to recharge your battery, then actually that's really difficult. How do you fit 11 hours of sleep into a day when you're expected to be up at half seven for school and, and all the rest mm -hmm. of it? So understanding amount of sleep is really important. As a general rule over the lifespan, the amount of sleep that we get decreases. And certainly in a uh, paediatric age range, that is physiological changes. So sleep support, that huge amount of mental and physical growth and development that happens uh, during childhood and into adolescence until we become adults. So that physical growth spurt we see uh, in babies in particular, the big growth in heads and all the rest of it is supported by sleep. Uh, we see an increase in the proportion of deep sleep uh, during a kind of primary school age and preschool age, which is probably at least in part supporting some of that physical growth and development. Um, so the, the amount of sleep they're getting is key to, to their normal growth and development. But then once you become adults, um, you should theoretically then have a stable amount of sleep. But actually what we tend to see as people get older, the amount of good quality sleep they get tends to deteriorate. And we think that's one of the things that changes with senescence effectively. Um, that as we get closer towards the end of our lives, our ability to continue to keep everything functioning in absolutely tip-top shape begins to drop off. And sleep is one of the things. So you often see an increase in uh, maintaining sleep uh, in older people. Mm. I remember again from that one sleep lecture, when I was maybe 20 or so when we had that, and they said, whoever was giving the lecture said that, from the age of 27 onwards you're biologically damaged or something like that and that really stuck with me and I got really stressed. Harsh, but <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's one of the, um, I mean you can think about that in a positive way, it's one of the ways to demonstrate just how clever we are as a species. You know if you look at the, you go back to the stone age or whatever, the biological life expectation of uh, humans would probably have been kind of 40, mm. 40 something like that. So kind of every year that we've added on to the average lifespan beyond that is representative of how good we've become at, at looking after ourselves, generally speaking. But but yeah, we are, uh, sadly, by the time you get to my age, you're on a downward hill uh, overall. <laughs> but again, that's why it's so important to put in what you can do to uh, optimize that. You, you know, you see that just looking at, you know, people in their 80s, there's a huge range of uh, what people in their 80s are physically and mentally capable of doing. And the people who've invested in, you know, good exercise regimens when they were younger, are still, you know, running marathons aged 85 kind of thing. Often it's not quite as strong correlation as that, you know, but, um, but yeah, so again, investing in sleep when you're younger, one of the ways to think about that is this is helping to, you know, make sure that your later years, which seem very far off to you at the moment, um, are as good as they can. Okay, that's, that's reassuring. <laughs> So I know you said that it's quite individual how much sleep you might need and things like that. Um, often I think the figure for adults, people will say kind of seven to nine hours yeah. in total and making sure you have a window around that as well, counting for falling asleep and stuff like that. Keeping in mind that it might not be the same for ex exactly everyone, what are tips for a good sleep routine for people? I think that people know maybe staying away from screens, but in terms of yeah. winding down, um. I learned about keeping the room cool and dark and things like that yeah. as well. So there are lots of things, but most of them are about doing simple things really well. Again, it's that kind of difficulty of getting, you know, people expecting to do something and get an immediate payoff uh, a lot of the time. Uh, you can think about it in three broad areas. So you can think about the environment. So exactly as you said, our bedroom environments need to be a reasonably cool temperature. Uh, they need to be dark. They need to be quiet. 
to be able to get good quality sleep. Something as simple as you have to have a comfortable bed. Uh, you know, if your bed is not comfortable, then you don't sleep well. And um, so you have to think, you know, how old is your mattress? When did you last change it? Is it actually uh, doing the job it's meant to do? And getting those things right can be really important. Um, our sleep lab uh, here in Evelina, London sits on the banks of the Thames. And until uh, three or four years ago, when Big Ben was shut up for repairs, we could see every quarter, every half hour, every hour when Big Ben chimed and bonged, the children having sleep studies in our labs, we could see the impact on their sleep quality of that. They didn't wake up but it affected their sleep quality. So something as simple sounding as sound and noise can have a big impact. That is really important. Getting the environment right is even more important if you are going to be, which you are, uh, a shift worker who's working at night, because that then means you're going to try and sleep in the daytime when your body's not expecting to be asleep. And it's much more challenging to get the environment right in the daytime. So it's likely to be louder, uh, brighter and uh, warmer in the daytime. So thinking about how you optimise your bedroom environment for sleep is really important. Um, really simple things, earplugs, eye masks, uh, blackout blinds, blackout curtains, uh, making sure you've got a decent mattress. All of these things can make a really big impact to people's sleep quality. Um, the second broad theme is routine and as much as possible what you should be aiming for. I often talk about um, flexible consistency. So it doesn't mean that you have to be absolutely rigid. You must go to bed at 10.30 and 13 seconds every single night. But as much as possible, you should be aiming to go to bed at the same time every night and to wake up at the same time each day. And exactly as you said, it's really important for most people to be building in some kind of relaxing and wind down time, particularly in that hour before bed, because we need to be able to relax, shut down, switch off our brains a bit to be able to go to sleep. And in the types of jobs that we do that you're about to come into, that can be really challenging. If you've uh, had a really busy day at work with lots of horrible things happening and they're all racing around in your brain and you have to have something that works for you to be able to step yourself away from that and wind down and everybody's different you know so a hot bath works really well for some people reading a book works for some people things like mindfulness headspace has a really positive impact for many people in helping them to relax and wind down um, it doesn't cure stress but it might help to distract you from the stress or pressure to help you to get to sleep which is how to think about it so building that really consistent routine uh, is really important. Get the consistent wake time, I'm afraid, is probably even more important than a consistent bedtime, which is often uh, even more time. Um, other things that are important, so you mentioned light and electronic devices. So absolutely in the evening, these are not great for sleep. They kind of confuse your body clock a bit and uh, make it uh, a bit less likely to get into good quality sleep. Um, the flip of that is that light exposure in the daytime is actually really important for good quality sleep. Um, and unfortunately, many NHS hospitals and office environments, the level of light that we get in these environments is not actually that bright. So making sure that you get out into the outside world uh, as early as possible in the day uh, and getting natural light is really good for sleep. Exercise is really good for sleep. Uh, we know that for many adults with sleep problems, uh, putting in, uh, in place an increased exercise regimen can be uh, really effective for improving their sleep. Um, and yeah, and it's about thinking about things like you know, the, the effect, as you kind of mentioned earlier, things like caffeine and alcohol and things that can have a negative impact. But yeah, it's all about doing relatively basic things relatively well most of the time. And, you know, no more hardcore than that. Are there any sort of hacks that tend to kind of work? I've heard things about trying to drop your body temperature by having a warm shower, putting socks on. and Yeah, so a lot of these things are based in physiology um, and some of them will help. The way to think about them is that they are probably just trying to help nudge you a little bit into sleep rather than forcing you into sleep. And um, a hot bath or a hot shower, I think, is good, probably more for the relaxation than anything else. But yes, when you have a hot bath, you come out of that, your temperature drops. So because your body then associates dropping temperature as one of the things that with falling asleep, it can sometimes just help a little bit with that. Um, but yeah, you know, there are lots of, you know, some, some of the, you know, the old fashioned traditional remedies for sleep are old fashioned and traditional because some of them do work. So things like lavender, for example, many people find really helpful, probably because it helps to relax them, which then helps them to sleep. Uh, but things like that do work for some people. But yeah, the message, I guess, is that don't expect there to be one simple, just do this magic trick and suddenly you're going to sleep perfectly. Mm. It's, it's about building that into uh, quality sleep routines and habits uh, overall. Okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about caffeine because I feel like that always kind of yeah. comes up and um, I've heard varying things about kind of the last time you should be having caffeine, decaf coffee still contains some caffeine and kind of caffeine yeah. myths and truths would be useful to go over. 
So again, this, this comes down to the fact that everybody's physiology is slightly different. That applies to caffeine just as much as everything else. So caffeine is metabolized by uh, an enzyme which comes in a few different variants. And some people will metabolize caffeine quite quickly and some people will metabolize caffeine very slowly. If you are a slow metabolizer of caffeine and you have an espresso at 10 o'clock in the morning, you will probably find it difficult to get to sleep that night. If you're a fast metabolizer of caffeine, you might be able to have relatively high caffeine load much later in the day and not have as obvious an effect on your sleep. So there is individual variation. The half-life of caffeine in the body is about six hours, which means that for most of us on average, you know, if you take a double espresso at midday at 6 p.m., you've still got an espresso equivalent circulating around. And by midnight, you've still got half an espresso circulating around. So that kind of underpins that basic advice of if you are using or if you enjoy caffeine, uh, which I do, I would say you're drinking a cup of coffee, um, and just to maybe think about that and not to be having uh, caffeine too late in the day. Um, the people who say I can drink, you know, a gallon of coffee before bedtime and I can still go to sleep is not a problem. One, they might be a fast metabolizer of caffeine and they genuinely might be people who don't be, are, are not impacted as much. The other probability is that if they are so sleep deprived that they just uh, are very sleepy anyway, that that might be stronger than the impact of the caffeine. Mm. And what then happens is they fall asleep, but the quality of the sleep they get is less good which actually then makes them more sleepy the next day, which then means they drink more caffeine to compensate for the fact, which then makes their sleep quality the next night worse again. So I always take that a little bit with a pinch of salt when people say, oh yeah, caffeine doesn't affect me at all. I fall asleep and I kind of go, yeah, it's probably because you're massively chronically sleep deprived uh, as well. Mm. But yeah, you can use caffeine. And you know, again, when we talk about uh, night shifts, we, one of the things that we spend time talking about with people is how to use caffeine as effectively as possible. You were talking about hacks earlier. One of my favorite hacks for sleep, particularly for night shift working, is the time that it takes caffeine to kick in for most people is around about 15 minutes. So one of the things that we recommend for people on night shift is that to use the breaks that you're entitled to. And during one of those breaks, if you can, to have a short power nap. So we're talking about a 15, 20 minute nap in the middle of the night, just to try and balance the impact of sleepiness and fatigue a little bit. And if you start that nap by taking whatever your favorite shot of caffeine is, you know, whether it's an espresso or a Red Bull or whatever, when you then wake up 15 to 20 minutes later, you're getting a double positive kick. You're getting the, the benefit of the sleep, but the caffeine's kicking in that then helps to, to manage things. The last most important thing about caffeine is that when we're thinking about its impact on fatigue, um, what caffeine does is it blocks the adenosine receptor. So adenosine is a substance that then gets built up uh, proportional to how tired you are basically and caffeine blocks the receptor um, but it doesn't get rid of the adenosine so when the caffeine wears off all of that comes back again it doesn't get rid of it it just temporarily hides it if you like from it so caffeine is not a cure for sleepiness or fatigue it's a temporary sticking plaster to help you deal with it um, or because you happen to like the taste of coffee that's interesting i didn't know that it's interesting to kind of picture that in your head with the receptor and you just mentioned sleep quality could we just clarify what is kind of meant by by good sleep quality and is that as important as quantity or can you not really compare so first of all i would say quality is probably more important than quantity um and when you know so for example when my colleagues in our adult sleep department are working with adults with classic insomnia um the surprise of many people who don't know very much about sleep, what they often focus on is not trying to improve the amount of sleep that they get. What they focus on is trying to reduce the amount of time spent in bed awake. And what, what that is all about is trying to optimize the quality of sleep first and then extending the quantity. Um, the quality is probably more important overall, but it's much more difficult to measure. The simplest measure, you know, if you're getting the right amount of good quality sleep, then you should be able to wake up relatively easy in the morning and get through your day without feeling, feeling tired or sleepy. Um, so that kind of you know, proof of the pudding kind of way of thinking about it is probably the most useful. In the lab, we can look at sleep quality uh, in quite detailed ways, but most people don't have access to those kind of measures. And although you know, the, the various Fitbits and things are beginning to get better at the information that they provide about sleep quality, it's still very rough and ready approximations. And we know that for many people that end up focusing on those devices, um, it actually tends to cause a lot of secondary anxiety about sleep that actually makes their sleep quality worse, not better, um, uh, which is unhelpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, sleep quality is just uh, uh, looking at the, the stability, I guess, of sleep. So we sleep 
uh, in cycles. We have different stages of sleep and we go through those in a relatively predictable way. Um, and that should happen at a regularly, sort of a stately sort of pace through the night. Um, if anything is affecting your sleep quality, then you get very fragmented sleep, very choppy changes uh, between those sleep uh, stages and disruptive sleep cycles. And from the outside looking in, you might still look like you're sound asleep. But if you have very poor quality sleep, you will wake up feeling tired and unrefreshed. Um, a hangover is the perfect example. Alcohol is a sedative. It knocks you out. So most people will be unconscious quite well if they've had enough alcohol. But alcohol also affects the quality of sleep. So one of the symptoms that most people get of hangovers is despite the fact that they may have been unconscious for eight, nine hours, whatever, they still feel tired and unrefreshed because they haven't had good sleep quality. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting you said that the best measure is kind of how you feel because I, I do have yeah. a Fitbit that I got for the purpose mainly of monitoring sleep and it gives you kind of deep sleep, light sleep and REM and sometimes it just doesn't really correspond. I think it's interesting and sometimes I can see, oh, I woke up there, I remember waking up there, but yeah. yeah. I think it is interesting and these devices are getting better, but they don't correlate well to uh, much more detailed analyses of sleep that we would do in the sleep lab as yet. They are getting better. And the difficulty is that for most people, as you say, people find it interesting and they might do it for a couple of weeks. And all right, okay, that's interesting, they put it away. The people that carry on wearing them are often the people who then become very fixated on it. And it is like, oh my God, my Fitbit said I only got seven hours of sleep last night and I'm meant to get seven mm. and a half hours. I must get good sleep tonight. And that pressure actually just makes it even more difficult to get good sleep that night. So uh, we had to create an entirely new condition called orthosomnia uh, to describe the impact of these sleep trackers on people's sleep. And the evidence is that at the moment, they overall, uh, they tend to make sleep uh, worse for more people than they improve. But they're interesting. Yeah, so that's interesting. So kind of an equivalent of orthorexia with diet and exercise. Mm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that affected me lots, but I got a bit fixated on it. So I was like, I'll just stop using it for a while. And... Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, and again, so that I think is why when I'm talking about routines and habits, what I emphasize is flexible consistency. Um, because the more of a straitjacket it becomes, the more people put the pressure on themselves to have the perfect night's sleep. And actually, we will all have nights where, for whatever reason, we don't get a good night's sleep. And actually, you're better just to, to write it off and go, okay, fine, don't worry about it as much as you can. Um, and try and then just get back into your normal routine the next day. The more we fixate on our sleep, the more difficult it often becomes. And yeah, if you're trying to make sure yeah, that you're going to sleep at the right, you know, the same time every night, waking up at the same time every day to, to the last minute, then it becomes a bit constricting. And I think that's not helpful, particularly when you're then looking at people who are working irregular shift tasks and all the rest. Mm -hmm. Podcasts that talk about sleep, talk about how bad sleep deprivation is, how bad shift work yeah. is, and you know, you'll get type two diabetes. And there's of course this risk of dying from being so tired and all these horrible accidents that happen, poor mental health. But many of us don't have any choice we have to if we're in the healthcare field we yeah. have to work shifts so what are some things that can be done to mitigate the risks of this the first thing to say about that first of all is that it's not just doctors that work around the clock um, about 13 percent of the workforce in the united kingdom uh, work shifts that include night shifts so that's over three million people um, it actually generates a huge proportion of our gdp so um, 3% of GDP. And I know that doesn't sound very much, but actually when you're talking about things like gross domestic product, 3% is actually quite a big chunk of anything. So there's a lot bound up in night shift economy and how we work. And the people who work at night tend to be people who are doing either emergency jobs like healthcare or essential jobs and things that make our lives more convenient and safer and run smoothly. You know, it's the the, the cleaners that are cleaning all the transport at night so it's safe, it's, you know, the fire, the police, the, the hill services, it's people doing the roadworks in the middle of the night so you're, you can get to work without being disrupted the next day, the people doing the baking, the you know, newspapers, all these kind of things all get done with night work. There's a huge amount of proportion of people that are working at night. And yes, it has a huge impact on health. So we, we mentioned earlier about the, all of the evidence that tells us about what happens with sleep deprivation uh, and health, and that is amplified uh, for those who work irregular shifts. Fundamentally speaking, we are not evolved to be awake at night. We are evolved to be asleep at night. And when we ask people to work at night, we're asking them to work against their body clock, and that has consequences. It is biologically the same as asking people to work when they're jet lagged. Um, so for all those reasons, I think we should be thinking a lot more about how to support sleep. So if we accept as a given that there is a proportion of the population who have to work around the clock for whatever reason, and then we are also accepting as a given that this is bad for their health, 
um, and it's also bad in terms of the quality of the work that they're doing, then we should be doing things to support them. In a hospital environment, that means that we should be thinking about this because of the, the risks to health of the people working the shifts, but also because if it's three o'clock in the morning and we've not thought about your fatigue, then the chances of you making a mistake that has a, an impact in terms of patient safety goes up. One of the reasons I got into this particular aspect of my work when I started doing it is because that sadly, um, we all too commonly, so usually uh, a few times per year, we see stories of senior doctors, of nurses, of other healthcare professionals who crash and die mm. trying to get home after night shift because they've briefly fallen asleep behind the wheel of a car on the motorway and boom. Um, so I think we should be thinking about how we mitigate this as much as we can. There is no good way to work at night. There is only the least worst way that is the best for the most number of people. So it's all about acknowledging that there is no right answer. Um, and what we try and do, so um, we've, for nearly a decade, I'm getting very old, but for nearly a decade, we've been teaching uh, junior doctors and student nurses that come through Evelina London Children's Hospital how to do this, how to manage your sleep, how to manage uh, your kind of sleep when you're not at work uh, at night, so the, the core sleep, those routines and habits, how do you get that as good as possible to give yourself the best chance of being able to come and work around the clock. And then we talk to them about the strategies that they can do to work as well as possible. And then we also do a huge amount of work uh, that's the flip side of that, about increasing awareness and saying, well, actually, this is not an individual problem. This is a systemic problem. Mm. And we have to then think about how the system uh, responds to that. And that's resulted over the last few years in lots of things. So uh, the BMA have done a lot of work on this. So the Fatigue and Facilities Charter that was introduced a few years back uh, is all about saying, well, what should hospitals be doing? Uh, the anaesthetic colleges have done a huge amount of work around this. Other colleges, like my own college, uh, Pediatric College, uh, Royal College of Emergency Medicine, uh, have all done lots of work about trying to increase awareness about the consequences of shift work and fatigue and sleep deprivation for both staff and patients, uh, and then to do what we can to mitigate it. But it's always just mitigation. Uh, we can't, you know, we can't take away that basic principle uh, that you know we're just not meant to be awake and working at night from a biological point of view. Mm-hmm. And thank you for acknowledging all the the other people as well that have to to do shift work. Are there any tips in terms of going into a set of nights or coming off a set of nights that you have and kind of is there any way in terms of timing napping or things like that? I know some people because yeah. I've tried to kind of stay awake really late the night before to have a lie in but that didn't work because my body's set to waking up early and things like that so what have you learned? It is tricky so your body clock is one of the, the most powerful drives there is in your body. Before a run of nights, the single most important thing that you can do is to really invest it in optimising your core sleep routine and habits. So for somebody in your position, uh, family, your medical student, uh, just about finished and thinking about starting 12th in August, I would be encouraging you to say, right, let's really look, if you can, in this couple of months before you start work, how do I get all of those basics as good as possible? Because the better the basics are, the more good quality core sleep you get, the better you're going to be able to cope when you're then plugged into a router that has you going all over the place. Um, there are also, you know, so when people design routers, for example, there are ways to design routers that take into account the way that body clocks work. So uh, body clocks uh, go forward easier than they go backwards. So you should always be on a shift pattern that has you doing day shifts, evening shifts, and then night shifts rather than any other combination, for example. So they're both individual and systemic things about how we think about that that's important. Uh, on the day before a night shift as an individual, uh, you can try and bank some extra sleep, but actually if, you have a, if you're not chronically sleep deprived, it's actually quite difficult to oversleep or sleep more. Um, so you can either try and have a long lie the day before, but it doesn't work for everybody. The other thing you can try is that everybody naturally feels a bit more sleepy. Uh, we're recording this around about three o'clock in the afternoon and around about this time of day, just because of the way circadian biology works, there is a natural increase in sleepiness around about this kind of post-lunch time of day. But the other way to do it is to take that opportunity. And the way that I encourage people to do this, again, is don't put the pressure on yourself to say, I must have an afternoon nap before I start night shift. Just say, I'm going to go to my bedroom, I'm going to close the curtains, I'm going to stick some earplugs in or some quiet music in the background, I'm going to close my eyes, lie on my bed, I'm going to set my alarm for an hour, an hour and a half, and I'm just going to lie here and relax. And if all you end up doing is you have an hour and a half before you come in to start a night shift where you've just relaxed, then brilliant. But if you manage then to fall asleep, then even better. And by taking some of that pressure off, by making the focus, the relaxation and not the falling asleep, you actually make it a little bit more likely that you fall asleep. And the more you do that, the more you can train yourself into doing it. Um, at the end of night shifts, again, it is difficult. And um, 
everybody has their own perfect way to, to reboot their body clock at the end of it. But the, the strategy that I generally encourage most people to do is when you finish your last night, um, try and debrief, get all the thoughts that are buzzing around your head out, all the worries and concerns, get yourself home. And before midday, try and get in a nap that lasts about an hour, an hour and a half. So what you're aiming for is one sleep cycle. Um, and what you're hoping to do with that is just to get enough deep sleep in your tank to recharge your battery. Then you need to set your alarm to get up, ideally by midday or, or, or soon after, and then get up, get out into the world, bright light, do your normal things, do some exercise, and then try to go to bed at your normal time that night. And hopefully you will still be sleep deprived enough that you'll be able to go to bed close to your normal bedtime. And then the kicker is you then have to set your alarm to get up at your normal wake time the next morning. Because if you end up having a long lie that morning, you will then struggle to get to sleep at your normal bedtime. And the chances are you're going to need to be back at work the day after. So what you're trying to do is kind of force your body clock to reset back. And again, this is where the better your core sleep routines and habits are, the easier it is to kind of force yourself back into them. If you've got really irregular basic sleep routines and habits, then it's much more difficult to revert back. Whereas if you've got a nice, flexibly consistent sleep routine to begin with, your body and brain will help, that will help them to ease back into that when you come off night Thank you, that's really helpful. And I, I found actually that when I kind of took the pressure off and was just like, if all mm. I do is just kind of meditate a bit with headspace and just Absolutely. relax, but usually I find that I do fall asleep for a bit and then I have a little nap. Um, the same thing's true, by the way, of power naps in the middle of the night. So I, I encourage people to think about them in the same way. Don't don't set yourself the task of saying, I am going to go and have a 15-minute power nap in my 30-minute break. And I must have the nap in this time, otherwise it's not going to work. Mm. Do exactly the same. Just find a place where you can go and hopefully lie in the dark, in the quiet. Hopefully I've given your bleep to somebody else for, for your break. Um, and just do exactly that. Make the focus relaxing. And if you fall asleep, great. Um, and actually people tend to find the more they do it that way the more likely they are actually you can train your brain into it um, mm, okay and what things can you think of while you're on the shift so we spoke about coming on to nights and coming off nights in terms of digesting food and things like that and I found mm. myself that I wasn't as hungry but I was very tired and I found that I needed something to get me through but I would get quite bloated as well when I try to eat in terms of timing of food and the types of food we should be eating um, and maybe is there any kind of place for exercise as well because I know that normally you wouldn't be encouraged to do exercise too late but would it be a good thing before a night shift to do a bit of exercise or uh, it varies and even that kind of advice about not exercising too close to bedtime is true for most people okay actually just like caffeine there are some people that can exercise very close to bedtime and actually mm -hmm. it helps them sleep so again a lot of sleep is about broad general principles mm -hmm. and then you having a bit of insight into your own biology and how to apply those um Eating is always controversial. So um, sleep deprivation affects our appetite. And people tend to find that they, not as that so people can feel hungrier, but what they tend to find is that when they do want to eat, they tend to crave things that are bad for us when we're uh, sleep deprived. And there are probably good evolutionary reasons for that if you can think through. But it does mean that, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, you are likely to be craving all the things that are bad for you. There's a psychology to that as well. If you just had a really rubbish, you know, few hours, if you know horrible things have been happening and all the rest of it, and sometimes three o'clock in the morning, you know, a cup of coffee and a Mars bar is what you need to be able to get through the rest of the night, and that's fine. So there's no judgment about this. As a general principle, um, our body does not handle calories well through the night, um, and that over a lifetime of working shifts uh, and all the rest of it will increase your risks of things like type two diabetes and obesity. The circadian timing of eating is again something we're beginning to understand a lot more about. And there is a strong probability that the way that we are evolved is that we're probably really only meant to be eating during a relatively narrow window of time during the daytime. Um, and that we're not really meant to be taking in calories through the rest of the day. So we generally encourage people to try and not eat between midnight and six in the morning. Um, and if you do eat, to try and make sure that what you're snacking on are relatively healthy wholesome boring uh, kind of things but i mean there are lots of ways to do that i think uh, soups and things are often a good thing to think about for night shifts because they're quite easy to bring in quite easy to heat up hopefully and, and all the rest of it so we encourage people to kind of balance it um, and try and avoid eating between midnight and six uh, as much as possible for those long-term metabolic uh, consequences but there are going to be nights where that doesn't work and 
as the, you know, it's again, it's the flexible consistency idea. You should not be beating yourself up because you've had to have a Mars bar at three o'clock in the morning. That is not what this is about. Um, but it's about giving people the information. That also then has to tie into things like, you know, in many hospitals, um, getting good quality, healthy food in the middle of the night mm -hmm. is challenging. So there is a bit of a responsibility on employers to make sure that they are providing access to food or at least food options that are better for you. And I was just thinking, we, we mentioned a lot of kind of the long term um, physical health consequences. Is there much known about kind of mental health uh, risks and things yeah. like that as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the other bit of it when we're thinking about that essential role of sleep for our um, health and well-being. So, again, really simple. You know, if you get a bad night's sleep, you are probably going to be a bit more impatient, a bit more uh, short tempered, uh, a bit more snappy the next day. Um, but we also know that when people are sleep deprived, they're a bit more likely to feel stressed, they're a bit more likely to be anxious, and it also begins to affect their mood and well-being. So again, you know, if you've had a single bad night's sleep, you might just feel a bit low and miserable. But sustained over time, that is one of the things that increases your risks of developing problems like anxiety and depression. There's a really complex relationship between sleep and mental health. So sleep deprivation absolutely will increase your risks of developing anxiety, depression, other mental health problems. But if you then have a diagnosed mental health uh, difficulty, then that also usually has sleep disruption as part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is one of the most powerful things there is to screw up your sleep. Um, and we saw that over the this time last year, when we were really looking at the first impact of coronavirus, there was research done by King's College in London that looked at uh, adult sleep in this country. And about 50% of every adult in the country was sleeping less well because they were all stressed and worried about coronavirus. Mm. But often the focus of that problem becomes sleep. You know, if those people had gone to their doctor, they probably would have gone and said, I have a sleep problem. I want some sleeping tablets. Where actually their problem is anxiety. And you know, a sleeping tablet doesn't cure anxiety. There, there can be a role for it, but, but you know, it's, it's important to think about it in that way. Depression. Um, we all wake in the night. It's normal. We, usually, we all wake and settle back to sleep multiple times every night and we're not aware about it. What we think happens when people are depressed, one of the differences is they wake and their brain immediately is fixated on all those negative thoughts, negative feelings. And then you get that early morning waking that is part and parcel of depression. And obviously, if you don't get the good sleep, then that further gets you into the vicious circle. So we always encourage sleep to be thought of as part of uh, considerations when we're thinking about mental health, but it's it's part of a holistic approach to assessment and management. It's, it's often not the cure uh, or cause in its own right. Okay. Because this podcast is called What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, I always finish by asking my guests what they wish all doctors or healthcare practitioners did learn when they were students. It can be related to the topic that we've been talking about or something completely different. So I think, that, yeah, with the perspective of my uh, normal job hat on, uh, I do think the fact that sleep is chronically neglected in medical school undergraduate curriculums and nursing and physios and you know it's not it's not just medical but uh, is a big problem uh, and I think many of us as professionals will end up spending time talking about sleep problems without that knowledge uh, and basic physiology as with all medicine as hopefully uh, Edinburgh is still teaching you um, understanding the basic physiology is actually really you know it, it means you can then problem solve but actually, as long as you've got a bit of basic knowledge about sleep and particularly circadian physiology, I think that has a big impact. So that would be my official thing. What else do I wish that I'd been taught at medical school? I think a lot of it is the kind of the almost like the hidden curriculum stuff. It's, you know, a lot of about being a good doctor is not about being able to remember, you know, the intricate details of the Krebs cycle and all the rest of it. I think it's making sure that we are training new doctors to be the best advocates for their patients uh, and to uh, make sure that they get the best for them, which I think we're getting better at in medical school these days. Um, it wasn't too bad in Edinburgh when I was there. But, mm. uh, yeah, I think that's a really important emphasis. I think one of the difficulties of traditional medical school curriculums has always been, I think, that there is that very needed focus on just how much knowledge you need to have. But the the punchier way of saying that is I wish that they had told me in medical school that as a consultant, it's absolutely fine to Google when you don't know what the hell the patient's actually got. I see lots of kids with weird and wonderful diseases that I've never heard of. And whereas where I was a younger doctor, I would have been you know, scurrying away and trying to hide my ignorance. 
these days I'm much more open about that with families. I just say, look, actually, I've never heard of this condition. I'm just going to have a little look and find out what I can about it. And then you can tell me. And, and actually that works fine. So I think that um, knowledge that it's okay not to know everything. And that doesn't mean that you're a terrible doctor. Is that yeah, that's good. I will be linking the BMJ article that you have with lots of great tips if people are interested yeah. in more reading uh, in more detail. Do you have any other kind of resources you would recommend or point people to? Uh, it depends what you're looking for. There's lots of good things out there. Um, there's a good book called Why We Sleep by Matt Walker, mm. uh, which is kind of a popular science book, but actually it's quite good at pulling together a lot of the uh, research and evidence that underpins a lot of what we've touched on today. It's one fault I think is it sometimes terrifies people a bit too much as long as you keep in mind that flexible consistency it's about pragmatic solutions not not perfect ones but yeah it's a really good overview of what we uh, know in terms of sleep medicine okay thank you um I first kind of came across this when I listened to a podcast episode with Matthew Walker on it and mm, I then yeah. was absolutely shocked that I made my parents listen to it and then I think we got a bit too stressed when we kind of realized the problem. I think that's probably the only real criticism I would have of Matt's book is I think it perhaps overemphasizes how awful everything you know, unless you get perfect sleep everything is yeah. going to be awful. Whilst there's a lot of truth behind what he's saying I think presenting it in that way um, I don't think that was his intent. I think that's just the way people interpret mm. it. But I think presenting it in that way often just means people feel very fatalistic about it. It's like, oh my God, well, if I can't fix this, what's the point? And then they just ignore it. Whereas I think taking a much more relaxed approach and saying, well, what can I look at? How can I improve things a little bit? Don't put that stress and pressure on you. And we've talked about that in, a, in a, you know, so the, you know, the, the Fitbit kind of idea, the flexible consistency, that you know, concentrating on relaxing rather than actually sleeping. Um, you know, all of these kind of things, I think, are, are the way to kind of counter that. But the, the content of his book is, is great in terms of summarising the evidence. You know, if you ever need to justify why we should be talking more about sleep, then his book is full of reasons why uh, in terms of doing it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and for coming on the show. I think we'll end there. That's all. Thank you for asking me. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. And if you did, why not share it with a friend, family member or colleague? Do also check out Dr. Farquhar on Twitter and the show notes for more information, including an excellent short article of his which summarises what we've discussed in this episode and some more. Remember to follow me at Wintlimps on Instagram and Twitter in order to stay up to date and give me feedback. I would love to hear from you. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day and I'll catch you again in another episode. Thank you so much for sticking with me despite technical issues and the sporadic episode release dates. Bye!